Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be looking at understanding a little bit of the gaps in our knowledge and our metacognition. And it's going to be the first part of a two-part episode on the illusion of explanatory depth. So if you like this one, you should also definitely come back for the next episode we release next time, which will be a follow-up to what we're going to talk about today. Illusion of explanatory depth. So to put that in uh, simpler terms, we're talking about a situation where you think you know how something works. You think you have a, a working knowledge of the thing, but in reality, you don't. Yeah. And we've talked about the gaps between the feeling of knowing and the actual knowing before. This came mm-hmm. up in the episode we did about the tip of the tongue state. You remember that the, the sense that you know something uh, is not necessarily coterminous with actually being able to produce that piece of knowledge from memory. There's a gap in your mind. So you, you think you know the name of the actor who played Tywin Lannister on Game of Thrones. Do you, Robert? Oh, no, I can't. He has that weird name that I can never No, T- Tywin. Yeah. Wait, which one's Tywin? No, I'm thinking of Jamie. I can never remember Jamie's name. What about Tywin? Come on. He's an alien three. Oh, Charles Dance. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, you got it. Okay. You didn't, you didn't have that gap then. Some people might. They there was like, a gap in there somewhere. I did feel a gap. If, uh, if you're familiar with Game of Thrones out there, you were like, some of you were probably thinking, Oh, I know that name. What is it? What is it? It was Charles Dance. Okay. I, the other possible, um, uh, gap there is you hear Tywin and then you were, is it Tyrion? Is it Tywin? Oh, yes, okay. some more names. Well, I pick, uh, Ty- character actors often fall into this category. The character, right. you know, the actors you've seen in tons of movies throughout the years, they become that tip of the tongue name where mm-hmm. you know the face, you know some movies they've been in, you know, you know the name, but mm-hmm. you don't know the name at the moment. It's just that guy. Oh, what's that guy's name? Yeah. And so there's this gap. There's this feeling of knowing and there's the gap between the feeling of knowing and the actual knowing itself. But the interesting thing is that this gap can be applied to other realms of knowledge. It's not just in trying to come up with the name for a thing. For example, in a quintessentially how stuff works move, I think we should look at the domain of knowledge that covers understanding how things happen or uh, really in really understanding how things work in causal relationships. Because, of course, we live in a world of systems Yes. The system's always trying to get you down. Right? <laughs> but uh, but there are causal systems all around us. Machines, uh, the, the coffee maker in the office, the computer you're working on, animals. Animals are systems of causal re- relationships. There are natural cycles like, uh, you know, the nitrogen cycle or the water cycle. Those are causal systems. And then other natural ph- phenomenon, uh, tides, rainbows, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, pooping, uh, all, all natural phenomena. <laughs> well, these are all things that, I mean, to, we have to mention, of course, the famous quote by Arthur C. Clark, right? Yeah. That any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah. But you could pretty much say that about like any, any system, uh, that if, if you, if, if it's, if it's, if it's, adva- if it's advanced enough and complex enough, and, mm-hmm. and most systems are, uh, it, it can, it can seem magical. Yeah. And the fact that the sun rises in the morning, um, there's a magic to that. We've, we've, we've observed it as magic and felt it as magic, uh, since time out of mind. We sometimes are, even though we have the, the actual scientific explanation for what's happening, you still 
also have this magical uh, version of of the event uh, paired right beside it on on the shelf in your mind. Oh, totally. I mean, we have strong intuitions to give uh, to give magical or kind of fuzzy causal relationships. Mm -hmm. And and it's funny because one way of interpreting the idea of magic or the supernatural is it's just causal indeterminacy. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, what do you mean when you say something happened by magic or something happened with a supernatural cause? It just means that the cause Essentially, you're saying, well, the cause isn't clear. <laughs> it's just kind of like getting vague about what it means to be a cause. I like this. You know, my my son, who's almost five, he uh, we, we try to explain how things work to him as one should. Uh, but he also has this concept of magic. It's a very loose concept. So the other day he, he had a new helium balloon and it was one of those uh, those fancy, shiny ones that uh, that you get. Uh, uh, what's the material? Uh, mylar? Yeah, mylar. So it was a mylar balloon. So it last, it was lasting longer. He's used to getting these cheap balloons and they, the helium goes down and they're on the floor. But this one was floating the next day and he said, Hey, the, my balloon's still floating. Is this, is it magic helium? Um, <laughs> which I think was maybe like his definition of magic is more in line uh -huh. with what you just said. There's a, there's a mystery there. Uh, -huh. uh like he knows that this helium is not behaving like, no, like like normal helium that that he's encountered, yeah, and he has no other explanation for it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so you don't have to at that point explain how the magic does what it does. If you did, it would sort of stop being magic, right? Uh, but yeah, so so there are these systems all around us. We we sort of naturally feel like they're magic, but we can come to understand the causal processes that that uh, that sustain them and that make them work. But as we've said, understanding and the feeling of understanding are actually separate things. And whenever you've got two different binary variables like this, I think it's interesting to try to make the, the grid table, you know, where you've got one binary on a column and one binary on a row. So you, you can think of things that we understand and that we don't understand. And then you can think of things that you feel like you understand or that you don't feel like you understand. Mm -hmm. So there are things that we understand and we feel like that we understand them, like a hammer. Yes. You think you get it. You really do get it. Yeah. There's, there's some very simple physics involved here. There's a, there's a, there's a definite uh, causal, um, process going on. Yeah. Then there's, uh, maybe how microprocessor engineering works. That's one where you probably don't understand it and you probably feel like you don't understand it. Right. This is one of those where you have a problem with your computer and you just, you tell your tech, uh, tech guy or gal, you say, it's all magic to me. I don't know how this works. Can you help me fix this problem? Right. So th those are the ones where our understanding and our feelings are basically in agreement. But what about the other two boxes? What about things that you understand, but you don't feel like you understand? This can actually happen sometimes. And I think it's often the starting place of a Socratic dialogue. Or if you ever, you know, the Socratic teaching method is where instead of telling students what to believe, you ask them questions and sort of lead them to understand that they already knew the answer, but they just didn't know how to articulate it. Okay. And so in that case, the, the child already understands. They just didn't know how to put the answer with the question in context. But then there's the, the other box, the things you feel like you understand but you don't actually understand. And the research we're going to talk about today is addressing how there is tons of stuff in this box. Mm -hmm. This box box is filled to the brim. Uh, toilets are probably in this box for you. <laughs> what do you what do you think? Unless you're a plumber or you've really done some work on your toilet, I bet toilets are in this box. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're 
they're fairly complicated uh, little little mechanisms, despite the fact that they, may, they maybe haven't, by and large, advanced as much as they should, because it's kind of one of those technologies that we tend to think, all right, it's good enough, and we don't want to we don't want to put too much extra thought into uh, into its design and function. Yeah, here's another one. How, how what about mirrors? Mirrors is a great one. Uh, I and I, I love this example. I think I've brought it up before, but. Uh, yeah, I think it's a perfect example of an everyday object that we take mostly for granted, but that is ultimately this insane, freaky mystery in our lives. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, really, it's amazing that we don't just run around constantly smashing them uh, like <laughs> maniacs. I think you, like me, love a good, creepy mirror story. Oh, yeah. Like a haunted mirror. Uh, oh, what's the Stephen King one? The Reaper's oh, Image. The Reaper's Image. Fabulous short story. It's one of his best, in my opinion. Uh, and there are tons of them. Lovecraft wrote one. Clark Ashton Smith wrote one. You could probably fill an entire book with just creepy mirror stories, and then I would buy said book. But wait a minute. Of course we understand how a mirror works. It's easy. It just, uh, well, like the light goes in and then it comes back, right? <laughs> well, yeah, we think we, we have we have it under wraps, right? Uh, because we encounter them all the time, and uh-huh. we have this sort of, ubiquitous uh, environmental knowledge of them. But when we're put to the test, the opposite seems to be uh, uh, the case. We we don't really understand how they work. And and I think this is why we have all these fictional tales about weird, creepy mirrors, because we need that that cultural release valve, uh, that, that psychic release valve for our uneasiness about them. But uh, in terms of just proving this out, uh, there was a 2005 psychological study from the University of Liverpool, and they looked into this, and they, they asked participants in, in the study to consider a d- draped mirror. So it's you know like a haunted mirror that's been covered up to keep monsters from coming out of it. And they had to predict <laughs> at which points in the room they would be able to see themselves if the mirror in the mirror, if the mirror was uncovered. OK, so if you really had a solid understanding of what a mirror, how a mirror works, you should be able to predict how you can use it. Right. And they weren't able to, to do that. Uh, they weren't a, they weren't able to. Another thing they couldn't do is they weren't able to grasp the fact that your reflection in the mirror is always half your size because the mirror is always halfway between the viewer and the viewer's reflection. Huh. So they'd be asked to say, well, they'd be asked, how big is your your head? in that reflection, and they would assume that it was the same size as their own head. Oh, yeah. That's so, what I would have assumed. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I really had to, to read the, that sentence a couple of times to realize, oh, yeah, there is the, the mirror is halfway between me and the, the spectral doppelganger. Okay. Uh, with the, that has his, uh, his hair parted on the opposite side. Um, the, uh, but the study basically revealed that we, we tend to assume, uh, uh, the size of the, re- the reflection. We tend to assume that we know exactly how the angles work for the reflection. Uh, we're terrible at determining what will be seen in a mirror based on the observer's vantage point. And a, a, a major example of this is the Venus effect that we see in so many paintings. Venus. What, what, now, what is that? Okay, so you have Venus in the painting. Uh-huh. Venus is looking uh, at her face in a mirror. And we're looking at the painting, and we see Venus's face. Okay. But if she's looking at her face in the mirror, how does that work? It's it's like next time you're watching a TV show or a movie and there's a scene with a mirror, overanalyze it. Oh, yeah. Really think about... Where's the camera? Yeah, where's the camera? What are they looking at? It uh, it really begins to open up your eyes to the fact that, it said, wow, I, I, I was completely hoodwinked by this. And maybe I don't have the, the firmest idea of the, the, the optical scenario going on here. 
uh, slightly related. Also, anytime you're watching a movie where there's a mirror on the lid of a medicine cabinet and mm-hmm. the person opens the medicine cabinet and then shuts it, be prepared to see another face in the mirror behind the person oh, yes. when they shut the lid. It happens every time. You know, one more just very quick optical example is just sight itself. I think we've touched on this, that the idea that sight is something that leaves our eyes. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. Like laser vision. Uh, this is one of those things, like I talked about earlier, where we have this magical, unrealistic idea of how it works. Yeah. And the, even if you have the the realistic idea of how it works, the idea that light is entering your eyes, uh-huh. you still you still end up thinking about the world in terms of the, the 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 fictional scenario. I think that's sort of a different gap because I think most people do know really they know that the light is entering the eyes, that nothing nothing's going out. But you're talking there about the difference between. What what we know and what we feel. Yes. Yeah. And I think that where those two converge, there's room for a lot of uh, confusion. I think that's absolutely right. Well, I, I think so. Today, we're going to look at the one big original study in the illusion of explanatory depth. And then in the next episode, we're going to look at some some takeaways and some applications from it. Uh, but so I guess we should get into the study itself, right? Yeah. Do you want to take a quick break before we get into it? I want to take a quick break, Joe, and then when we come back, let's get into this study. All right, we're back. All right, so this landmark study is called The Misunderstood Limits of Folk Science, an Illusion of Explanatory Depth, published in Cognitive Science in 2002 by Frank Kyle and uh, Leonid Rosenblatt. And so they start by discussing the idea of Folk theories. Have you ever heard this concept before, Robert? Folk theories or folk science? Yeah, this is just kind of the, it's like folk medicine, right? It's not necessarily, there's not necessarily any science to it. It's just kind of the, the, the general uh, understanding of how something works or how it's supposed to work. Yeah, it's what we come up with when our methods are not rigorous, mm-hmm. essentially. It's what we all do sort of intuitively all the time. And so they say, you know, sort of a theory uh, can be defined as a system of ideas that are designed to explain something observed. Mm-hmm. The theory gives an explanation. And theories are a totally common feature of science and of everyday life. You know, we, we use theories all the time. They might not be good or correct theories, but we're constantly having theories about the explanation of the workings of objects and systems. A great example of this is uh, that blue blood in your veins. Oh, yeah. Do you have an explanation for that? Well, there's no. The, the, well, it's because it's deprived of oxygen. Yeah. Right. Isn't that why it turns blue? That's not correct, is it? No, it's not correct. But it's it's one of those that is often thrown out there, sometimes by very intelligent people. It's it, I mean, I, I don't mean to to mention any of these as a, an example of uh, intellectual failing, but they just they pick up s- uh, steam. They're passed around and it, it's easy to go through life thinking that they're true. No, and that that connects to another thing we should say. This episode is going to be all about our cognitive limitations and failures and overconfidence in what we know. But this isn't to say that people are stupid or, you know, we're not accusing the people featured in the studies or people in general of being dumb. 
it, it's just good to reckon with what the mistakes human brains usually make are. Yeah, human brains make mistakes <laughs> continually. And uh, I mean, the best you can do is be aware of the limitations. But one of the things about these folk theories is that they often feel like they explain more than they actually do. Take the blue blood in the vein. Mm-hmm. That that seems intuitive. What if somebody you believe that, OK, I'm looking at my veins and they're blue and it's because the blood turns blue. What if somebody asked you to write down an explanation of how that happens? <laughs> That's where it gets uh, tricky. Right? Then you'd start being like, well, wait, um, so I'm trying to write the steps down. So the blood is deprived of oxygen and turns blue. How does that happen? I don't, you'd start encountering gaps in your knowledge. And the authors of the study write about this. They say, quote, we frequently discover that a theory that seems crystal clear and complete in our head suddenly develops gaping holes and inconsistencies when we try to set it down on paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, intuitively, I think that's they're exactly correct about that. I've had this experience plenty of times or not even on paper. I bet, Robert, I bet you've had this experience, too. I know I have. Here in the podcast studio, mm-hmm. in the middle of a podcast, maybe a, a tangent comes up where you briefly want to explain how something works that's not central to your research. And you think you do. So you just start talking and you get a sentence or two in and you wait. You're like, what? Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I thought I understood that when I started talking. But now that I'm saying the words, I don't actually know how this works. And you have to stop. And figure out, okay, what am I going to do now? <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, you have to make that decision. Do I, do I own up to the fact that I, that I really don't know what I'm talking am about? Am I going to make everybody wait while I read about this for 15 minutes? Yeah. yeah. Or do I just plow ahead and somehow <laughs> weasel my way out of it? Um, I, I tell you where I encounter this a lot is, uh, is in the preparation for a podcast episode. Mm-hmm. My wife will ask me what we're recording on this week. And I'll say, Oh, we're recording on such and such. And she's like, Oh, really? What's, what's that about? Give me the elevator pitch. And, and then I'll start to explain it. And then I'll realize, Oh, I, you know, it, it's, you know, A plus B equals C, mm-hmm. except I can't adequately describe step B right. in the scenario. It made sense in your head until mm-hmm. you started trying to use words. Yeah. And then that's where the, that's where it became problematic. And what it reveals is that in fact, it didn't actually make sense in right. your head. It just felt like it did. And it's a useful tool for us because then you know, Oh, Oh, well, that's that's what I don't understand. That's uh-huh. what I need. That needs to make sense to me truly, because if it doesn't truly make sense to me, it's not going to make sense to the listener. Right. OK, so folk theories in, in contrast to scientific theories where you've got scientists trying to constantly hunt down the gaping holes and inconsistencies in their theories and fix them uh, with folk theories. uh the explanatory systems are sort of produced in the minds of lay people by non-rigorous processes. And uh, so if you're not a telecommunications engineer, you probably have some kind of folk theory about how your cell phone works, right? You've got some basic skeletal idea of, well, there's a signal in the phone. Maybe, you know, it's electromagnetic radiation that goes from the phone, from the antenna part, maybe, or the antenna is hidden inside now, but it goes from part of the phone to a tower? Does it go to a satellite? I no, don't know. It goes to the cloud. Right. That's a big one. And, I, and I've been guilty of this, too, not really stopping to realize, oh, wait, the cloud. Like, I know that there's not an invisible Wonder Woman's airplane type computing system floating in the sky. Mm-hmm. And yet somehow I fall back on that idea, just perhaps just out of like I, I out of a lack of desire to understand um, the the details mm-hmm. of our telecommunication system, but uh, 
But yeah, I find myself at least putting it up, putting the non-realist, the unrealistic version up on the shelf with a more realistic uh, expectation of technology. Yeah. And yet, nevertheless, you sort of think you understand how a cell phone works, yeah. right? At a basic level. Yeah, at a basic level. And and then you start, oh, no. Uh, but so the authors of the study, they're, they're talking about the, the problems with the way people hold them. So they say, quote, First, uh, they are novice scientists. People, people in general are, are novice scientists. Their knowledge of most phenomena is not very deep. We have shallow understandings. But then they also say, quote, second, they are novice epistemologists, meaning people who study how knowledge is generated, how we know things. Uh, uh, continuing, their sense of the properties of knowledge itself, including how it is stored, is poor and potentially misleading. So we have both an incomplete understanding of how many things work, but we also fail to recognize that we have an incomplete understanding mm-hmm. uh, exhibited by the fact that when we get put on the spot, we're, we're sort of caught off guard. We're like, oh, wait, I thought I understood that, but now I'm realizing maybe I didn't. Um, so their central thesis in this paper is, quote, we argue here that people's limited knowledge and their misleading intuitive epistemology combine to create an illusion of explanatory depth, or IOED. Most people feel they understand the world in far greater detail, coherence, and depth than they actually do. Um, also, they say that we're more overconfident about our understanding of some types of knowledge than others, specifically our, our knowledge dealing with explanations for how things work, that that is that is to be singled out. So to test these ideas, the authors performed a big series of studies. There are actually 12 different studies inside this this massive paper uh, to measure people's level of confidence in their understanding compared with what their actual level of understanding is as measured by their confidence after they've had some calibration mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, then uh, comparing that within various different domains of knowledge, meaning just different types of knowing things. Do you know facts about geography or do you know the narratives of movie plots or do you know how a toilet works? So uh, there have been a lot of previous studies about overconfidence. And one of the things that's important to establish is that a lot of previous research has sort of focused on general knowledge, that people might be overconfident about knowledge in general. And the authors are not into this idea. They don't like the idea of general knowledge. Instead, they like the idea of breaking out knowledge into these different categories because, as they will end up showing in their research, the brain estimates its own knowledge in different categories in, in with different levels of accuracy. Yeah, I think we all, most healthy individuals realize that they know a lot about some things maybe, but certainly little or nothing about other topics, correct? Right. Uh, and especially, uh, n- not just topics, but different types of things to know. Mm-hmm. Like you might be way more, if I ask you, um, Robert, uh, what is the capital of England? Before you answer, tell me how confident are you that you know the right answer on a scale of one to 10? Uh, I would say a 10. Okay, what's the capital? London. Okay, you're right. There okay. you go. Okay, but tell me, how confident are you that you can explain how a lightsaber works? <laughs> well, uh, not not very, because that's a it's a, essentially a magical device. Oh yeah, I forgot. And uh, and and I also don't. I actually I think I rewrote the intro page for how lightsabers work or, on HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah, so I I have actually worked with. The an article, an article that explains how it supposedly works, 
but I don't recall it at all. Has, do you think working on that article would have made you more or less confident in your own understanding? I think if I had actually worked on the meat of it, mm-hmm. but that's an article where I think I just spruced up the, the, the landing page. I just sexed it up a little. Did Tracy Wilson write that one? No, I think it was an older piece. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, let, let's go on to the study. Okay. So. Study number one out of this. Uh, first thing they wanted to do was document the illusion of explanatory depth. If this thing exists, let's see if we can get some evidence that it is there. So they got okay. 16 graduate students from various departments at Yale. And these are the participants. Uh, th- this was done by professors at Yale University. So there's a lot of Yaleys in this. And the uh, the test dealt with their ability to explain how a bunch of devices work. So participants were given instructions on how to rate their level of explanatory knowledge of a device on a scale of one to seven with the help of a couple of examples, a GPS system and a crossbow. So <laughs> with the example of a crossbow, basically a seven means, you know, all the parts and you know how all of them work together to make the device work. You know, all the causal relationships. You could you could almost build the thing yourself if you had all the parts. Mm-hmm. Um, a one means you you basically don't know anything more than what it looks like and what it does. You don't know what the parts are, how the parts work together. It's almost magic to you. Okay. Then the participants were given a list of 48 objects and asked to rate their level of understanding of how the object works. So you just go down this list, uh, you know, uh, LCD screen, car battery, a zipper, a speedometer, piano key, can opener, hydroelectric turbine, flush toilet, cylinder lock, helicopter, quartz watch, sewing machine. And you're supposed to give the number on the scale of one to seven. How well do you understand what all the parts are, how they work together? How well this, uh, how well do you understand how it works? And just to use a little terminology because it'll recur throughout, throughout all the different studies here, this first rating is known as T1, this thing they give on the first questions. Their own self-rating of their explanatory knowledge of each item is T1. Okay. And then in the next phase, the students are asked to write a detailed explanation for half of the, of some of these items in the test category, uh, to explain in detail how a sewing machine works. So you, you rated maybe a four on how well you know how a sewing machine works. Now we need you to explain it step by step in, in words. And then they wrote that detailed explanation. Then they were asked to rate their initial understanding again. So now that you've written that explanation, how well did you understand it to begin with? Uh, then they were given, and that, that rating is T2. Uh, then they're given a diagnostic question. For example, uh, if one of the items they had to explain was a cylinder lock, the diagnostic question might be, do you know how to pick a cylinder lock? And this question is designed to force the person to think even more about what the parts are and how they work together. And then after the diagnostic question, they're asked to rate their initial understanding yet again. How well did you understand it to begin with? And then finally, the participants got to read a brief explanation written by an expert of how these items worked that they uh, explained. And these expert explanations came from a CD-ROM titled The Way Things Work 2.0. I was hoping they'd use some vintage How Stuff Works articles. <laughs> no, no, alas. It was 2002. How Stuff Works existed then, but we were not here. Anyway, after reading these expert explanations, they had to uh, rate again how well they had initially understood the device and then how well they understood it now after having read the explanation. So what are the results? What does this graph look like? You start with your initial guess and then you get adjusted by having had to make an explanation 
answer a diagnostic question, and then read an expert's explanation. Well, the graph forms a kind of U shape or an inverted bell shape where initially the students rate their level of understanding really high or Mm -hmm. relatively high, not necessarily really high. But it's like, yeah, you know, I give it a four. I, I understand pretty well how a cylinder lock works. Then then they have to give the explanation and the ratings drop off significantly. Now, note that this is not somebody coming in from the outside and telling them their explanation is wrong. This is their own self-evaluation after having had to do nothing but just put their own ideas into words. Okay. Then it continued to drop again after the diagnostic question and then finally shot back up again after reading the ex- expert's explanation. No, no surprise if you read somebody telling you how it works. Now you understand how it works. So you know, it's a perfect story arc. It's kind of like a, um, most kung fu movies, right? Where you have the, the, the young student who is overconfident and then is, uh, his, gets his, uh, his rear end handed to him by the, the villain. And then he has to learn, he has to accept what he doesn't know. And then he has to, to learn the craft from a, from a master. And then in the end, he can defeat the villain. Mm. It's a kind of a karate kid situation. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's interesting how, uh, how our, our narratives play on this, this, uh, fact about us. It almost suggests that somehow we might intuitively be somewhat aware of the illusion of explanatory depth. Uh, but so anyway, lo- looking at this graph, so, you know, th- there were drops from T1 to T2, and then again, slightly from T2 to T3, and then pretty much no drop from T3 to T4. And then a large increase from T4 to T5. So one of the things is the pattern rules out the idea that confidence is dropping merely because of the elapsing of time in the mm-hmm. experiment, right? It's not just people are steadily going lower. You know, they they're, they eventually stop lowering their own score and then it comes back up after they read the expert's explanation. So, uh, so that's, basically you have to confront what you don't know in order to learn. Yes, exactly. And the interesting thing is that if they're, they, they sort of rate themselves lower, but then they don't keep dropping, you're not in free fall. Maybe that suggests that they're adjusting more toward real accuracy in their judgment of how much they knew. Mm-hmm. There's also an interesting note that they have, though this is not quantified data, but this is just sort of a subjective report from the debriefing. Afterwards, you know, they talk to the people who were in the experiments. And many participants uh, subjectively said they were surprised and felt humbled by how much less they knew than they'd originally assumed. But also, and this is really interesting, even with this new humility, some of the participants showed that they were still susceptible to the illusion of explanatory depth, because here's what they said. If only I'd gotten the cylinder lock instead of the flush toilet or whatever, <laughs> then I would have done better overall. So or if only I'd gotten these other devices <laughs> instead of the ones I had. And the experimenters say this judgment seems unlikely to be true, given that the average level of performance on the, the two d- different device sets used in the test was pretty much identical. OK, so it, to use the Kung Fu advantage, it's like the uh, the young, foolish uh, hero uh, enters into combat with the villain and is uh, defeated in a sword fight. Uh, <laughs> and then afterwards, he's like, like, oh, my goodness. I, yeah, I, I really didn't know how to fight with a sword after all. If only we he had fought me in judo. Right. Then then I surely I, I would have taken him out like that. But what if this guy, everybody else said that about judo and this guy has defeated everybody in judo also? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if he's wrong about this thing, then is it, 
could he, is it true that he's right about everything else? I, I would doubt it. Well, it is if he's very special. Well, maybe he's very special, but, but yeah, it shows this, um, you can still, you still have the blinders on. Mm-hmm. You're like, you've been humbled on this one category, but you're still susceptible to the, the to the illusion of yeah. understanding in, in all other aspects of life. Yeah. If only I'd had the toilet, then I would have been <laughs> golden. Okay. Anyway, so established here, but, uh, this is a pretty small sample, 16 grad students, also mm-hmm. Yale grad students. That's a pretty rarefied group to draw from. So we need to do some more experiments of the same type to try to uh, replicate the results. So they did another one, study number two. They repeat the same experiment, same conditions, with a larger, younger sample, a group of 33 Yale undergrads. Uh, undergrads from the same school were picked because, in the words of the authors, quote, Conceivably, graduate study leads to an intellectual arrogance and the illusion of explanatory competence might be less in undergraduates who are still awed by what they do not know. (laughs) (laughs) There were there were some parts of the study where the writing was a little cheeky. Mm -hmm. I I appreciated it. Uh, But the thing is, it replicated, basically. It got very similar results, uh, producing the same pattern with respect to the responses over time. Uh, They initially rated their own understanding higher than after they had to explain it not got knocked down uh, and then down by the diagnostic question and then up again at the end after they got to read what the expert had to say. But one thing that's interesting about the undergrads is that the effect was actually just a little bit, not significantly, uh, not statistically significantly, but a little bit stronger with undergrads than with graduate students. So the uh, the the graduate student arrogance theory we can say is probably disproved by this. <laughs> uh, the, the undergrads actually did a little worse in over overconfidence about their understanding. I, I can certainly remember being a an, an weirdly overconfident uh, undergraduate for sure. I think we all can. Yeah, man, wasn't that a great time when you knew everything about everything? I you know I do remember the kind of the trajectory of sort of. In particular, I remember going into some religious studies classes with certain ideas about the, the values of certain religions over others and how religion kind of worked. And uh-huh. and uh, and it was just completely foolhardy. And then I was opened up to just some some generally basic ideas in religious studies and, you know, the, the, the importance of, of worldviews and how and the similarity between systems, the history of these different religious systems. And, uh, and, and I do remember there being like this, this resistance to it at first, uh-huh. giving in, realizing I didn't know anything. And then a real excitement that built up from there. And really there's, you know, continued my entire life. And that's something I always try and keep in mind on our show, because sometimes we do encounter listeners who have, uh, uh, an, an adverse reaction to studies that we talk about or different, um, mm. different takes on topics. And I always remind myself that, well, uh, to put it in terms of our study here, that uh, well, not quite free fall, but that descent uh, that occurs doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel it, it can it can feel a, it can, it's a fearful situation at times. Yeah, and it's humbling. Uh, it's humbling. And it's in the process of being humbled is is not necessarily enjoyable. It's like being beaten by the villain in a karate movie in the first uh, the first act. But the true wise person seeks to be constantly humbled by what they don't know. I agree. I'm I am humbled. Week in, week out by the things I don't know. Oh, so how wise are you then, Robert? I, well, that, that's the thing. I, <laughs> I admit that I am not the, you know, the, the wisest, uh, guy in the room, but I am, I, I'm willing to admit that there's a lot, there are a lot of things I don't know. And I'm continually hungry to, to fill in those gaps. 
As we should all be, sir. Yeah. Uh, okay. So back to the study. So we've looked at one sample and then a larger sample of undergrads. Maybe we need to look at a different university. Maybe Yale students are just generally more arrogant about their own understanding. Uh, so they figured they should try this at a different university. 16 students from a regional, less selective state university were given the exact same experiment. Uh, and they judged the selectivity by comparing the students' SAT scores. The students at this other university had an average of 540 points less on their combined math and verbal. And the result was the pattern of, uh, the pattern of results was very similar to the first two studies. A steep drop off in confidence after being asked to explain what you thought you knew. And then rising confidence and new understanding after reading the expert explanation. In fact, though the overall pattern was similar between the Yale students and the students from this other university, the students at the less selective university actually showed a slightly stronger illusion of explanatory depth effect, uh, mostly due to the fact that their initial ratings of knowledge were about a point higher than those of the Yale students. And so the result, results of the first two studies were basically replicated. But basically, you could you could roll out various different interpretations of what this means. Though, yeah. Right? I mean, uh, again, because we're all susceptible to this, I mm-hmm. think we should try not to put judgment, uh, you know, moral judgments on on people's. Uh, I know I said arrogant a minute ago mm-hmm. uh, because I think the authors were being a little bit cheeky when they were talking about grad Yale graduate arrogance. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, th- th- it's not that you're a bad person if you overestimate how well you understand the workings of a toilet mm. <laughs> we've all been there yeah especially if you attempt to fix one that's generally where my the humbling comes where if something breaks in the house and i think oh well maybe yeah, i can I, fix that yeah, of course i've got an ikea toolkit <laughs> let me add it and then it's you know hours later you realize i'm in over my head i need yeah. to actually call an expert but you don't want to admit f- defeat right uh okay so next study study number four Well, maybe a strange selection of devices is driving the effect, right? They're asking people about certain things, cylinder lock, helicopter, toilet, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. What if it's just uh, particularly strong for cylinder locks and toilets and helicopters? What if this effect wouldn't show up as strongly for other devices? So they did the same experiment again, got 32 undergrads but with many more options for devices uh, to explain in the experiment and to keep the experiment time under one hour. Uh, the last couple of ratings, T4 and T5, were taken off. So participants only did the first three ratings. And uh, the results were the different devices didn't change anything. The results were the same. So it seems to be robust across all different types of machines that you would need to explain the workings of. Okay. People generally overestimate their understanding of them, and then the explanation makes them realize that they overestimated. So next study, well, what if the subjects are just being cautious? This is something I thought about when I, I was sort of running through this uh, with uh, with Rachel on the way to work today. I was like, how well would you think you understand how, a, you know, a, a can opener works or something? And we discovered that we would tend to just rate ourselves very low, maybe because we've been primed with the fact <laughs> that there is an, a, an illusion of explanatory depth. So I'm just going to I'm going to start with a two to be safe. Yeah, because if you're asking me, hey, do you know how do you know how a can opener works? 
I would think you're trying to trick me. Right. And so maybe maybe the experiment is doing the same thing in that uh, once the experiment as the experiment goes on, people are just becoming more cautious. They're being put on guard and uh, regardless of the actual accuracy of their original explanatory depth. Does that make sense? Like they're not adjusting toward how well they actually understand things They're Maybe they're just adjusting towards caution, just lower yeah. in general. And so um, some students were recruited to subjectively. So they, basically they did the same study again, the same test, uh, you know, uh, had people make the assessments. But then they also got some people to subjectively rate the explanations written by the original people in the study. And uh, some really complicated statistical analysis was required on this one. But the basic result was that according to the independent raters who read people's explanations and rated them on the scale, the participants initially overestimated their level of understanding and then their confidence ratings became more accurate when they dropped uh, after being asked to give the explanation on the and on the calibration question. So this seems to rule out the idea that people are just becoming more timid or more modest or cautious as the ratings go on through the test. According to some independent judges who come in and said, oh, wow, this explanation of a can opener is a two. <laughs> um, according to these people, the participants are actually becoming more accurate as the test goes on. They're getting closer to how good their understanding was for real. Here's another thing related to the priming I was just talking about. Study number six. Can you destroy the effect just by warning people that they're going to have to give an explanation for how some of the items work? So think about it this way, Robert. You know, I ask you, um, on a scale of one to seven, how well do you understand uh, how a toilet works? And be prepared to explain your answer. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, another example of this would be when someone asks you, hey, uh, have you ever seen such and such movie? Your answer might be different if you know that the follow up is tell me, me the plot. breakdown yeah. of the plot. <laughs> Yeah, because because uh, that I've, I've had that happen before where someone says, hey, you know, such and such movie. And sometimes you interpret that as do I know of that movie? Uh-huh. Uh, did I see the trailer for it once? Uh, did I watch it 20 years ago? Yes, yes, maybe. But then if you actually have to prove that you know this film, uh, that's it's sometimes a different can of worms. Right. Yeah. So it could put you on guard. Right. And so the question is, if the illusion of explanatory depth effect is real, what we would expect is that maybe maybe warning people this way uh, might reduce the effect a, lim- a little bit, but it shouldn't eliminate it. It shouldn't make it completely go away. Right. Okay. Um, so with, uh, 31 undergrads again, uh, they did the exact same test, except they added a paragraph warning the subjects that they were going to have to give a written explanation and answer a diagnostic question. So what happened here? Well, the results on this one were pretty odd. The same pattern presented itself in that the first ratings they gave were higher and then they dropped after being asked to write an explanation and then again after the diagnostic question but the magnitude of the effect was reduced so the drop off was much less um there's still a difference between the initial and the later ratings but the odd part is it wasn't because the subjects who were warned initially rated their understanding any lower that's what you would expect right you'd expect that if you've been warned your first rating would be more cautious, right? Yeah. I mean, if someone warns you, whatever you say, someone's going to call you on it. So don't 
don't BS us because you you will be you'll be corrected. You will have to have to prove your answer. Yeah, but that's not what happened here. Instead, they were no less confident in their initial understanding. Uh, it was because their later self ratings were higher. Hmm. And that's kind of weird, right? Huh. So this seems to reveal that it's it's not just a it's not it's certainly not a, a conscious matter of I really of thinking, oh, well, I really don't understand how toilets work, but I don't want anybody to know. So I'll just <laughs> tell them I understand. <laughs> it could, I mean, it could. I mean, maybe that's what's going on. The authors write, quote, one possibility is that the new instruction changed the way participants used the rating scales. Mm-hmm. For example, hearing the explicit instructions may have caused participants to try to be more consistent with their subsequent ratings because they had less justification for being surprised at their poor performance. Okay. Basically, like being it's like you were warned. What excuse did you have? for over uh, for being overconfident in how much you knew um and the fact that you were warned maybe i don't know makes you more embarrassed that you were overconfident and thus you're less likely to admit how overconfident you were initially hmm. i don't know that it, it, it that's a, that's an odd result here so that's worth keeping in mind but at this point the study considers the initial effect basically satisfactorily satisfactorily replicated for how we understand the mechanical workings of devices. And then it's going to move on to other things, other types of knowledge and what the researchers call different domains of knowledge. Does the same illusion of knowledge hold true for things other than uh, like uh, explanations of causally complex phenomena, like how a machine works, how a device works? Does it exist for facts? Does it exist for narratives, for procedures? Can it be lumped in with general overconfidence effects or is the illusion of explanatory depth its own thing? So maybe we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will get into the rest of this study. All right, we're back. So study number seven. One of the things is, what if people are just generally overconfident about what they know, regardless of the type of knowledge? What if it's not just explaining things? What if everybody's overconfident about all their knowledge? Yeah, I could see it being sort of like the scenario in which the the brain just sort of convinces you that you have an answer to a question. Yeah. Just so you don't have to worry about it because the brain's ultimately an economic system. It can't it doesn't need to waste resources. So it's it's uh, it, I've read for instance uh, individuals who have been quizzed on where they were and what they were doing during the September 11th attacks. Uh-huh. People have very specific answers. So saying I was wearing a blue shirt oh, and right. I was eating uh, honey nut Cheerios. Uh-huh. But that in many cases, what seems to be happening is you're in this state of uh, fight or flight, really. Uh, You're not sure how you're going to survive on some level. Mm -hmm. And your brain just goes ahead and makes up an answer for you as if to say, (laughs) hey, don't worry about it. It was a blue shirt. Why are you worrying about your shirt? There's this awful catastrophic event taking place. Don't worry about the cereal. Bam, I'll just check something off. Don't, Don't even don't even fret. Yeah, I've, I've heard about this too, uh, like memory confabulation in, yeah. in these, these like momentary memories, uh, the, you know, the flashbulb memories from some big event in your past. Yeah. So it's like if I go into the bathroom and on some level I'm thinking, do I know how a toilet works? My brain is kind of saying, yeah, you know how a toilet works. You yeah. use a restroom in it and then you flush it. Obviously. Yeah. Don't worry. You've got other things to do. Stop worrying about the toilet. Okay. So let's test some basic geography here. So specifically what they did was naming the capitals of countries around the world. 
experimenters, uh, they came up with a list of 48 countries and they split it roughly in thirds between countries where it's easy to know the capital or where at least where you would expect American students to easily guess the capital. Okay. How about England? We hit that one already. London. You, you know, man, genius here. <laughs> uh, then the ones where they were moderate likely, moderately likely to know the capital and then the ones where they were very unlikely to know. So split into thirds. Uh, Robert, what's the capital of Brazil? Oh, this one, it's uh, like Brasilia. Brasilia. I, I, my Portuguese is not good. You you are correct. I was hoping I'd trick you into saying Rio de Janeiro. Oh, uh, well, uh, so th- this is, you would have caught me with various states uh-huh. for sure. Because, yeah, you think of the, what's the the most famous city from that country or U.S. state, and then you assume that's the capital. If I recall correctly, the uh, Brasilia-Rio de Janeiro confusion is actually a major plot point in one of the I Know What You Did Last Summer sequels. What? Which <laughs> I am here publicly admitting that I've seen. Oh, wow. Uh, but then also, here's a hard one. What's the capital of Tajikistan? Yeah, that one, that one is one that I, I probably should have a leg up on that one because I took, uh, because I, I remember taking a course in college about former Soviet states in mm-hmm. that region. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm drawing up complete blank on that one. I, I think it used to be called Stalinabad, but now it's, uh, Dushanbe. Okay. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so participants, 52 college undergraduates, um, and they were first shown a list of all the countries. So here are all the countries you're going to have to know the capitals of. Go down and rate them on the seven, same seven point scale. Rate your confidence in how well okay. you know the capital of all these countries. And then they're asked to actually list the names of capitals for half the countries and then asked to re-rate their knowledge. So essentially it's the same thing, except instead of giving an explanation of how something works, you're just listing the capital. Then they're told the real names of the capitals and asked to re-rate their knowledge. So what are the results here? Well, compared to a combined group from studies one through four, and the authors justify combining them into one group in their discussion, uh, the students who were tested on the facts showed a different pattern in the same direction, but with less magnitude. So confidence dropped off significantly between the first and second rating. So after people had to answer the questions, they were less confident. But uh, it stayed almost the same for the final rating. And though the drop off from T1 to T2 is statistically significant, uh, it's significantly smaller than the drop off in explanation. So essentially with facts, we're seeing a pattern that's going in the same direction, but it's just much smaller. Uh, the line graph shows a slight decrease, but it's closer to being flat than the graph line for the device explanations. So we've got some overconfidence with capitals, and okay. I think we've all got to be that way given our schooling, right? How how many capitals did you have to learn in school? Why do why do they do capitals? Uh, you know, I remember I remember exercises where we had to, of course, remember the states and their capitals, but I also remember uh, a, just a lot of ge- geography quizzes that had no substance to them. Yeah. Like you'd have to, you'd have to uh, memorize all the nations of Africa. Mm -hmm. And yes, some of the, some of the nations you were learning about, you know, every, everyone's learning about Egypt. Everyone's learning something about South Africa, Mm -hmm. but then there are all these other um, African states. You're not even asked to know anything about them just except for their name. And so, so they're useless facts because there's no substance behind it. Yeah. I feel like it would be much more useful if, if you're doing that instead of learning capital, to learn like uh, primary languages, main ethnic groups and main exports. Yeah. But I guess there's only so much time in the day. Then again, I guess I won't complain when I I don't know. It's good being able to produce a capital. You still you still get that third grade rush. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, I did it. 
Brasilia. <laughs> uh, okay. So next, next test, study number eight. Uh, what, let's, lo- let's look at a different domain of knowledge. So we've looked at, uh, we've looked at explanations for causal phenomenon with devices and we've looked at facts. What about procedures? So this, uh, this type of knowledge in a way is very similar to explaining how devices work. It involves explaining how you do something. Okay. How do you tie a tie? How do you bake chocolate chip cookies from scratch? How do you drive from New York to New Haven? This makes me think of uh, all the wonderful WikiHow uh, explanations out there, often with pictures. Oh man. That explain and yet don't explain the, the thing you looked up. Uh-huh. The, those things are my favorite. Mm-hmm. Looking up obscure eHow articles used to be one of my favorite <laughs> games on the internet. The best one I ever came across, I swear this is true, it was an eHow article. I think it doesn't exist anymore, but it was called How to Pray for Money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. For money. So it's so it would be like... It had instructions. Kneel and yeah. pray, ask for money. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I think it was actually it was actually kind of uh, complex because it was like recognize that money might not be the most important thing. Um, that was like step number five, I guess. OK, well, these are the kind of things that I guess occur when when writing assignments or going out, um, you know, lickety split uh-huh. based purely on, uh, you know, search engine terms. Right. Right. OK, so th- this part. So n- they're going to run the same test they've done before, all the same rating steps. Everything's the same, except instead of explanations, it's going to be how do you do this? Here's a procedure. Write down the steps and, and w- what order they come in and, and how they work together. Results are very interesting. Uh, this pattern was completely unlike anything we've seen before. So instead of the ratings dropping off between T1 and T2, your first guess, and then your adjustment after you have to write something, write the answer out, the ratings actually showed a slight but statistically non-significant increase from 1 to 2. And so after you have to give an account of how to bake chocolate chip cookies, you're actually more confident in your knowledge than you were before you wrote down the steps. Um, and I, I thought that was interesting, but it also sort of matches. I can see how that would be true. Like you think you probably know how to do something. Then you write down the steps to do it mm-hmm. and looking at them there. You're like, oh yeah, I was right. I knew. And so you're a little more confident. Yeah. Especially if it's something you've never, look, chocolate chip cookies is an example. Like so often you're going off a recipe yeah. or at least I, I'm not being a real baker. So I'm going to look up the recipe and then I'm going to follow the recipe with no intent of memorizing it. And then afterwards, I may be able to recall those steps and list them out and say, oh, all right, that looks accurate. But then if I actually take that list and compare it to the recipe, I'm bound to have left out some like key steps. Yeah. Well, like baking them or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like uh, licking the, the raw egg laden spoon a lot. <laughs> That part I got down. Oh, yeah. Uh, so so the authors also report, again, uh, this is some non-quantified information, but just some uh, post-test debriefing. They they report that students didn't show any of the now characteristic surprise and all the other stuff, you know, after the test. They'd be like, wow, I can't believe how much I didn't know. Uh, instead, they seemed perfectly aware of how much or how little they knew about how to do things. On the other hand, I guess, I, yeah, I would say this isn't really all that surprising, our mental process of remembering how to do something is very different from our mental process of remembering how something external to the self works, because when you're remembering how to do something, it's usually a first person memory. You picture yourself being the thing doing the thing. Yeah, often it's like an unlanguaged experience. 
I've had this, this experience with Legos recently. Uh, cause, cause I'm building Legos with my son. Haven't built, built anything out of Legos since I was a kid. And I'm realizing that I, I'm, I'm sure there are industry terms for all the different blocks and the sizes of blocks, but I do not know what those terms are. So <laughs> I'm, and the, the, of course the instructions are wordless. So I don't have any lang, or I have very little language to describe the steps that are taking place. But I can, you know, I can picture myself doing it. Yeah. And there there are also plenty of things where there is like uh, something you know how to do through muscle memory that would be difficult to put into words. Like, could you explain the steps of how to ride a bicycle? Right. Or a big one is uh, is tying a, a long necktie. Yeah. But like I can I can tie one on myself. I cannot tie one on another person. And you right. see this all the time with people where if they're going to tie a tie for someone, they have to wear it themselves. Huh. Uh, well, at least it, that is interesting. And I think that's true in my experience, but it does not seem so much borne out in these results. It seems like people are or or maybe actually it's not that people were perfect at being able to explain how to do procedures. They were just very accurate in predicting how well they would be able to explain them. OK, because you are you it's based on an actual memory of doing the thing or trying to do the thing. Yeah. OK. Um, so yeah, so next, next study, what about a different type of knowledge? We've looked at facts. We've looked at procedures. How about narratives? Oh, one of my favorite things to recall is what happened in that part in big trouble in little China after the monster first pokes his head. Out. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, recalling a narrative. If, if the plot of a narrative is basically realist in terms of genre, you're not talking about El Topo or something. Mm-hmm. There is a causal logic to the events that take place in it, right? In the sense that a narrative, like the plot of a book or a movie, is a kind of machine. It's a structure built out of causal relationships that can be labeled, explained, and summarized. So so let, let's look at the machine of movie plots. Thirty nine students were given a list of 20 popular movies uh, selected to be things college students were likely to have seen. I think Forrest Gump was one of them. <laughs> uh, and they're asked which of the movies they had seen and then asked to rate their understanding of the plots of five of the movies they'd seen. And then after their T1 first ratings, uh, they had to describe each of those five plots and then re-rate their original understanding. So it's the same procedure we've seen the whole time, except instead of explaining devices or procedures, it's plots of movies. And then finally, they read a reviews from a professional uh, movie website or not reviews, summaries of plots from a professional movie review website and then compared those to what they had and rated again. And the results were that the pattern was closer to the one for procedures than the one for devices. I thought this was interesting because in a narrative, you're recalling a narrative. That's not something you had to do with your body. It's, so that it's taking that element out, mm-hmm. but it's closer to the pattern for procedures. Uh, there's no significant drop off from T1 to T2. People were pretty accurate at predicting how well they knew narratives. That's interesting because just thinking back on movies I've seen, like you mentioned Big Trouble in Little China, and I mm-hmm. instantly started trying to, in my mind, sort of piece out a timeline of that movie. And it's a mm-hmm. movie I've seen a lot and, and, uh, and I have a lot of love for, but there, I think there's some definite holes in my attempt to restructure, you know, at what point they go to the uh, to the import export uh, business there right. and then they come out and then they go back in. And when did this encounter 
fall in line. You know, they uh, they ran a different study to test different devices just to make sure the device list they had wasn't peculiar. I wonder if they should have run another test with different movies. Like, what if the movies they had were unusually perspicuous and clear in terms of plot relationships? Oh, yeah. Like, say, a romantic comedy. Yeah. Say, uh, like the movie Amelie. I've, despite the fact that I've seen Big Trouble in Little China far more than I've seen Amelie, I'm far more confident in my ability to to just rattle off the the plot points and the the basic movement of the narrative for Amelie because well, it one follows, thing follows from another yeah right it, it follows a basic uh, there's a basic blueprint for that sort of film and I'm not saying Big Trouble in Little China doesn't follow a, a very basic blueprint as well no I think some kind of random things happen in it yeah. you wouldn't necessarily infer from one scene what's going to happen in the yeah, next yeah that's a good point uh yeah anyway so next study. Let's look at one more different type of knowledge. So we've looked at explanations for machines, facts about geography, procedures on how to do things, and narratives for movie plots. How about explaining natural phenomenon? Oh. <laughs> natural phenomena are complex causal systems. In a way, they're very much like devices or mm-hmm. like machines, except they're, you know, they're not made by humans. But in other senses, they are like that. They have causal relationships, different components that work together, and they, in, in the end, they make something happen. Uh, so participants were 31 Yale undergrads, and the study was identical to the ones before, except instead of explaining how a device works, you explain how tides occur, how why comets have tails, how earthquakes occur, how rainbows are formed, things like that. So just like in the first four studies, they gave the initial confidence rating, you know, rainbows, oh, I'm a six on rainbows, then they had to explain how they're formed, yada, yada. And the results were... Ah, it's a jackpot. The results distribution from the explanations of natural phenomena were very similar to those for devices. Ah. They were closest to devices. So whether it's tides or whether it's toilets, we think we understand how things work. But when we try to explain it, we realize there are lots of gaps in our understanding. So to summarize the results across all these studies, we've seen that people are significantly overconfident in their understanding of how devices work and how natural phenomena occur. Um, that asking for an explanation makes this overconfidence apparent and reduces it. Uh, people are somewhat overconfident, but less so about their knowledge of facts like capital cities. And people are fairly accurate at judging their own knowledge of procedures, how to do stuff and narratives, what happened in a movie. Now, the big question is, this is the thing we haven't gotten to yet. Why? Why? So what's causing these differences in metacognition across different domains of knowledge? Why are we more overconfident about some types of knowledge than others? What is it that would make us more confident about knowing how a toilet works than about knowing the plot of Forrest Gump? Well, my my initial answer would be that we assume a certain simplicity of its design, like Mm -hmm. without even really reminiscing too much on Forrest Gump. I'm given the fact that it was a big blockbuster summer movie. I'm assuming it has a pretty simplistic structure. And as for the toilet, I mean, it has such a um, it, it has such a, a low standing in the household when it's functioning that you you just assume it couldn't be that complicated. Why hmm. would why would it take high technology to simply dispose of human waste? Hmm. Hmm. 
Yeah, uh, I, I guess I can see that. I mean, so one of the answers that was given in the piloting they did for this, you know, when they were trying to think what what are some good hypotheses that could explain this this difference is uh, complexity of the device. Mm-hmm. And so the hypotheses that they ended up wanting to test were how about confusion of what they called it confusion of environmental support with internal representation. I mean, that means is confusion of the fact that you can see the parts and how they work with the idea that you can represent the parts and how they work in your mind. Um, and so what this predicts is devices like bicycles mm-hmm. and can openers and stuff that are very clear and perspicuous are the things that we're most likely to overestimate our knowledge of the workings of because when we can just look at them and see all the parts, there's no, there's no sensation that the workings are being hidden from us. But in your mind, try to draw a picture of a bicycle right now. I think actually, even if you've seen lots of bicycles, chances are you just mentally illustrated a bicycle that could not work. I don't know. I, I feel, I feel a sense of, uh, perhaps false confidence here. Well, maybe. I mean, maybe from just cause I assembled one, uh, on Christmas. Oh, well, but, if you've, if you've actually assembled a bicycle, then you might be in a different category. But, but I'm willing to accept that I'm completely foolhardy on this. The, the bicycle might be, if you've actually worked on them with your hands, it might be more in the procedures category. Yeah, but with an you. IKEA toolkit. So, yeah. caveat, <laughs> uh, in place. Well, I mean, a lot of people would try to draw, try to draw a bicycle and then they'd have like a, uh, you know, like a single bar running from, uh, the spokes of both wheels and that would make it impossible to steer the bicycle and stuff like that. Or they'd have, um, you know, the chain running to the front wheel and the back wheel, uh, or something like that. Well, it also makes me think that one of the scenarios here is that you feel that one should be able to understand a bicycle. Yes. I'm, I'm reminded. Yeah, that's the ease of representation. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm reminded of a, a bit in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance where, uh, it's one of the parts where he's talking about motorcycle maintenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but he, he says that the motorcycle is a perfect vehicle, a perfect, perfect, just a perfect system to have control of because it is a it is a complex system, but it's not so complex that a single individual can't master it and care for it. Yeah. And whereas if you get into progressively more complicated mechanical systems or just systems in general then it becomes increasingly difficult for one person to be able to have a grasp of it. Can you be the master of your Prius? Right. Ooh, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are people that can. I, I, I could not be the master of a motorcycle. I'm, and I'm willing to, to admit that I probably can't even be the master of a, my, my son's bicycle at this point. <laughs> Well, I bet you're more master than me now that you've actually used your hands on it. I I know I now I I was primed. I actually had to think about what's in a bicycle and look it up. But I'm quite confident that if I'd just been asked to draw a bicycle and the different parts and what they do, I would not have been able to do it correctly if I hadn't thought about it ahead of time. Okay, another hypothesis. What about confusing higher and lower levels of an analysis? Basically, this just means uh, if you've got a, uh, an idea of the causal relationships at a high level, you know the the big parts of a machine and basically what the machine does, you assume you have an understanding for the things at the lower level, even if you don't. So you think about car brakes. Uh, car brakes slow the spinning of the wheels by applying friction. I understand how car brakes work. Mm-hmm. But, but there, there are tons of things involved <laughs> in the brakes. You've got some kind of hydraulics probably or, you know, fluid or some kind of, how, do, how is the pressure applied from the brake 
pedal to the brakes. What are all the different little gears and connections and parts? There's tons of stuff there that you're not even thinking about. But at the high level, you basically know what it does. And so that makes you assume that you know how it works. It's a confusion of the what with the how. Yeah, like examples uh, that come to mind are like a chainsaw. Yeah. You know how the cutting occurs, but do you really know how the... Uh, all the uh, intricacies of the the saw itself, uh, hydraulic press, like the one at the end of Terminator. Oh yeah, you know, you know it's a pretty simple concept. Uh, the two pieces come together and flatten the Terminator, but there's a lot more involved there with the hydraulic system and uh, everything else. I, like I don't, I I don't even have a, a firm enough understanding of of that of how how uh, the intense pressure is applied via hydraulics. Yeah. Yeah, um, that, that, that's a good one. How about another explanation? What if it's, uh, the problem that explanations of, of how things work, explanations, unlike facts and stuff like that, have indeterminate end states in that if I ask you the capital of a country, how confident are you that you know the capital of a country? Whether or not you're right about the answer, you know what the answer will look like. Mm-hmm. It will be, you know, a short word and you, you think you probably know what that word is. Um, with an explanation, it's just, it's very open-ended. You know, you don't exactly know what the answer should look like. Exactly how detailed is it supposed to be? Um, you know, what are all the things that would be in it? It's, it's, it's more amorphous in terms of structure, even if you haven't colored inside the lines yet. And then the final hypothesis is what about rarity of production? We just, Robert, here's one where you and I might be different than a lot of people, not to say we're better, we're probably worse, but most people don't have to give explanations of how things work very often. Uh, but we do often have to give recountings of facts, narratives, and, uh, and about procedures, right? These are things that are common for everybody to explain, but it's not all that common for people to explain how things work. And this may make us overestimate our performance at it. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I mean, we, we are in kind of a privileged, uh, situation where we are constantly having to confront the things we don't know yeah. and, and research them and form, form an understanding of ourselves and then share that understanding with listeners or readers or viewers, what have you. Yeah. We, we, we're, we're practiced enough to know how little we know, hopefully. No, we probably don't know how little we know. We, <laughs> we foolishly think we know how little we know, it's but do true. we really know? We, yeah, no. we have an illusion of depth of understanding our own ignorance. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. But hopefully we have a leg up on the, on the situation. That's the, the main hope. Maybe. Well, we try. We try. Probably fail, but we try. Okay, well, to examine uh, how these figure in, uh, there are a couple more studies. There are two more in this uh, in this research. So one of them, study number 11, is uh, what if the difference in the different knowledge types is just that some knowledge types are more socially desirable than others? I hadn't thought about that. That's kind of interesting. What if we're more likely to overestimate our knowledge in, say, uh, devices because it's much cooler to know how a toilet works mm-hmm. uh, and thus much more socially desirable? And thus we're sort of internally bluffing on the most socially important categories. That could be possible. So 24 Yale undergrads participated in this. They rated on a seven point scale how embarrassed they would be 
if they have to admit, if they had to admit they were ignorant about certain things and the things uh, on the list were pulled from a combined master list of the contents of previous experiments. So you're asked like for each item, please rate how embarrassed you think you would be if someone asked you to explain the item and it turned out that you did not have a good understanding or knowledge of that item. So apply what I just said to a flush toilet. The plot of Forrest Gump, how to tie a bow tie, the capital of England, how rainbows are formed. Okay. And the results are that people were the least embarrassed to be ignorant about how devices worked. They were moderately embarrassed to be ignorant about facts, procedures, and natural phenomena. And then this was crazy. They were the most embarrassed to be ignorant about narratives. Huh. Interesting. Because it seems like you would have the that would, you'd have the most plausible deniability there. Yeah, you could I say, "Oh, I, I haven't seen it in a while, or I haven't seen it, or uh, I didn't like it all that much." I, I, mean, it, I guess for college students, having seen certain movies carries a lot of social cachet. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's. Hmm. Now, anyway, uh, so this response pattern does not show a correlation between overconfidence in a knowledge domain and the social desirability of the knowledge domain. People are not bluffing themselves on the important stuff or they would be convinced they know way more about what happens in movies than they actually do. Last study in this research. Uh, so what exactly is correlated with overconfidence? Having established that people are the most overconfident about their understandings of devices and natural phenomena and ruling out the idea that this is because those domains of knowledge are socially accept or desirable, uh, the experimenters, they were trying to measure what are the other factors that are correlated with overconfidence and understanding. So they returned to our old friends, the devices, the, the cylinder lock, the flush toilet, the grand list from studies one through four. Now, this tested a lot of uh, different correlates like uh, familiarity with the item, the ratio of visible versus hidden parts, the number of mechanical versus electrical parts, the total number of parts, and the number of parts for which one knows the names. Uh, there was a lot of complicated analysis on this one as well. But in the end, the researchers ruled that the visible or to hidden parts ratio explained the most of the variation in overconfidence. Uh, in other words, a device with visible transparent mechanisms, in their words, seems to be the most likely to trick you into thinking you understand how it works when, in fact, you would discover yourself unable to explain it. So like we were talking about the can opener, the bicycle, things that seem very clear and easy to to look at and think you understand are the most likely to make people overconfident in their understanding. Um, they also believe that the results indicate that the, quote, levels of analysis confusion and the label mechanism confusion may contribute to feelings of knowing. So that means uh, confusing the higher level with the lower level, you know, knowing, confusing what it does with how it does it at, at the granular level. And then also knowing the names for parts of a thing might make you overconfident in thinking that you know how the thing works. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Uh, it certainly is. And I can definitely think of this uh, in like biology. Remember in high school when you learn the names of all the parts of the cell, maybe not high school, I don't know, one, but some science class you have in school, mm -hmm. you learn all the parts of the cell. Yeah, you in do the human drawing. Body. Maybe there's an art project involved. Yeah. And then you think you know how the cell works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how the cell works. Are you a fool? Yeah. I mean, the same can be said of the human body, right? I mean, you, you, you learn all these different anatomical parts, the different uh, organs. But 
to say you know what a liver is uh, is a different thing than saying you know how a liver works. Exactly right. So they say in their final discussion, uh, they're, they're thinking about, you know, the explanations for what causes the illusion of explanatory depth. And, and they're sort of focusing a lot on this idea of the, the environmental support, being able to look at an object and see the parts and confusing that for an understanding. And I thought this was a good Good passage. They say, quote, it would be easy to assume that you can derive the same kind of representational support from the mental movie that you could from observing a real phenomenon. So that's like when you play a movie of a thing in your head, Mm -hmm. uh, that you could confuse that with the same level of information that you get from looking at the object working. They write, quote, of course, the mental movie is more like Hollywood than it is like real life. It fails to respect reality constraints. When we try to lean on the seductively glossy surface, we find that the facades of our mental films are hollow cardboard. That discovery, the revelation of the shallowness of our mental representations for perceptually salient processes may be what causes the surprise in our participants. That seems uh, very plausible to me. Like you, you, you try to put together a mental movie of how the can opener works mm-hmm. and you're playing the cartoon in your mind. And because you can do that, you're like, oh, OK, I know how it works. Like I, I just made the parts work in my mind. So I know what all the parts are and what they do. And it's something uh, it's something about this trick where our imagination is less vivid than we think it is. Like I'm picturing it in my head. I can see it in my head. But then you try to explain it and you realize there are blind spots in your own imagination that you do not realize are there. Yeah, our mind kind of tricks us into thinking we filled in all those little gaps. Um, like I was having I mean, a similar situation just with Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. Um, I feel like my memory of it when I summon it is more of a, just a flash of images and, uh, and, and probably, uh, leaning heavy on just the, the film score, mm-hmm. uh, just all these different ideas, scenes and sounds from the film that I have encapsulated as my memory of the film. I think that's true for a lot of movies with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet for some reason, people are generally better at predicting how well they'll be able to describe a narrative. So <laughs> that, that's one of the outliers for me. I'm wondering what, what that really means. Hmm. Well, I mean, you could, could certainly take that apart and say, well, a lot of it has to do with the way that we make sense of our lives being narratives when they're really not uh, looking for the story shape in everything from, you know, your personal life to current events. It uh, we're, we're, we're continually bashing our head up against the reality that things do not play out with the economy or the form of a traditional narrative. Well, unless you have anything else, Robert, I think we should wrap up this first part. And then when we return next time, we can look at some of the applications of the fact that we have an illusion of understanding, an illusion of explanatory depth about the world around us. How can this knowledge be brought to bear in various domains of life? Yeah, we'll consider the children. We'll consider politics. Um we might even consider zombies a little bit. We'll see. Uh, so one of the, one thing though, I do want to keep in mind uh, about this is that you shouldn't just take this as pessimistic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, oh, we, we don't actually understand things as well as we do. How horrible. Y- you could be pessimistic. You could say, why do we know so much less about how things work than we feel like we do? Or you could look at this in a very optimistic way and then, and instead ask the question, how are we so good? at surviving in and traveling through and manipulating the world when our models for understanding causal relationships are so skeletal and bare bones. Hmm. 
like, why are we so good at life compared to how absolutely, uh, 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 sparse <laughs> our, our mental imagery that animates our understanding of the workings of things is? Yeah. Uh, and I think at two other positive spins, Hey, if I forget details of the plot and the, 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 the narrative structure of Big Trouble in Little China, that means the next time I see it, a lot of stuff's going to be new again. Oh. And then, uh, and you, we talked about our own privileged, uh, place of, of continually exploring new topics and, and confronting what we don't know and learning more about the world around us. I should also point out, at risk of sounding like I'm pandering, uh, that our audience probably is in much the same boat. The mere fact that you listen to stuff to blow your mind, um, that you engage in, uh, educational, infotational, uh, podcasts. Oh, no. <laughs> It, it just mean, it means that you too realize, hey, like for instance, we had a recently had an episode on butter. Some people might say, yeah, I know how butter works. I'm not going to listen to that. But people who did listen to it, they realized, well, I think I know how butter works. But if they did an episode on it, then I guess there's more to the scenario than I, uh, than I, than I give it credit. Oh, that I guess there's more moment I feel like is very central to what we do. Yeah. Uh, but don't let it go to your head. <laughs> Robert, you and I and you out there listening, we're no better. We're no better. Uh, we just, we just strive to understand the depths of our ignorance. All right, and uh, if you want to strive to explore the depths of your ignorance, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where we find all the podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, uh, you name it, links out to social media accounts. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, etc. But the mothership is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And, of course, as always, if you want to email us directly to get in touch about this episode or any other, you can hit us up at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. We'll be right back.